We are live. We welcome all you that are watching us around the world tonight. We'll get this podcast sometime this week. Those of you that are here in the building, I know a lot of folks are having vacations this time of year, but we're in a good spot. You'll be glad you came tonight. We're in Job chapter 2, and we're going to make it through chapter 2, I believe. It's only 13 verses. Uh, but we're going to go some places. Here's the places we're going to go. And I think you'll enjoy this. Well, part of it you, or part of it you might not. Uh, we're going to talk about the sons of God. We're going to talk about Enoch. We're going to talk about the Great Pyramid. We're going to talk about the Nephilim. We're going to talk about the fallen angels. And we're going to remind ourselves that the three original historians, before there were historians, were Enoch, Job, and Moses, or Moshe as he's called in Hebrew. We welcome all of you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time we have together. Thank you for your love and mercy. We know you've been faithful in every situation. We have a choice. You've given us a choice whether to commit and follow you or to do our own thing. Lord, we all need to hear from you. In every situation we, we, we make, we need to hear and get direction from you because you know what's around the corner. It may seem like a small thing to us, Lord, but you consider and are concerned about the smallest matters in our lives. It would be good, Lord, no matter what decisions we make, that if we brought them before you and we didn't just make them based on what we saw or what we thought or our emotions, but we would base them on how you lead us and what you say to us. We pray for that, Lord, in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. So Job has been attacked with his businesses, his livelihood, and losing his children and many of his servants. That's what happened in chapter 1. The Lord dropped the hedge. The enemy came in. God gave him certain boundaries. But we're going to talk about something. We're going to also talk about suffering. This suffering is... Something that God allows in our lives for reasons. Now notice, I want you to pay attention here, a few things. Let's pick up in verse 1 of chapter 2. It says, Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came also among them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said to Satan, From where do you come? Now, hold your spot there. And let's go to Job chapter 38. Let's look at verse 4. It says, where, uh, where were you? Now, we're just going to take a little snippet out of uh, 38. We'll come back and work with this theologically from Job's perspective when we get to this point. But let's look at these sons of God. It says, Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? To what were its foundations fastened? Who, or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together, and all the sons of God shouted for joy. So this is before man's created that he's referring to. He's talking about creation. 
And there God has created angels. We call them angels most of the time. But they're part of God's creation. They're under His command. These sons of God are also mentioned in Genesis chapter 6. Let's go back to Genesis chapter 6. In Genesis chapter 6, this is a peculiar chapter. And I'm going to try to give you some things about this. Uh, I've spent a lot of time studying Jewish history. I've got a lot, lot longer way to go. See, I'm not even sitting in this chair, am I? I can't. I thought I was going to sit. Uh, and I've spent, I've been, lately, I've been spending a lot of time studying Egyptian history. And the reason I've done that is because the Israelites had a long vacation down there, 400 and some years. So they were, they were immersed into that culture to some degree. And so a lot of what went on in Egypt was influenced by Israel and vice versa. Chapter 6 of Genesis verse 1 says, Now it came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God, here they are again, uh, saw the daughters of men that were beautiful, they were beautiful, very, they were beautiful, they, and they took wives for themselves of all who they chose. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, for he is indeed flesh. Yet his day shall be 120 years. Uh, there were giants on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came in to the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. Now, let me give you some things to think about. I say we get through chapter 2, it's not looking good already. <laughs> let me give you some things to think about. These sons of God who we see in the scripture are angelic beings. They're angels. We also know that a third of the angels sided with Satan. So we have angels who Peter talks about who kept their first estate and Jude. And then we also have uh, fallen angels who sided with Satan and now they're kicked out of heaven and they're, they do wickedness. So we have Two groups of angels now, because the original angels, a third of them went against God. Okay? So these angels, these sons of God, they've appeared before God, and Satan shows up with them in Job. Here in Genesis 6, they wound up laying with earthly women. All right? And that's where we get the word Nephilim. And if you have run across that word, that is someone, that's the offspring of this relationship between an angel or a son of God and a natural person. So these Nephilim are half spiritual being and half angel, or half, half human, I'm sorry. That's, what, that's, where the, that's where we get Nephilim. Now... These angels are certainly supernatural, possibly larger than, than humans, uh, because we see the kind of offspring. Now, I know probably your first question is, well, how were they able to procreate? I'm going to give you an, a thought about that. Everybody say, it's what the preacher thinks. God, in His perfect state, now we know sin has marred everything, but God is perfect, and He's love and life. 
In Him there's no darkness at all, John said. So God don't create anything that can't reproduce. Even an angel. Now these angels were here for a reason. Let me tell you what I learned through Jewish history. Uh, these angels... The, this, these angels didn't just look down over the railing in heaven and say, there's a good looking woman, I'm going after her. That's not what happened. There is these angels, the Jewish people believe, were dispatched here to work alongside Enoch. Enoch was a special man. He's the only man in the scripture who got his own personal rapture. Elijah Totally different situation. He was caught up in a chariot. But Enoch had his own personal rapture. And if you study the Hebrew where it talks about Enoch, it suggests that his molecules were changed just exactly like what's going to happen to us if we're alive when the Lord returns. So he was the seventh from Adam. Seven is completion. He was taken out before the judgment of God. He's a beautiful picture of the church. He was also, I know there are writings out there that are... uh, a claim to him, and some of them were probably his. Some of them have probably been distorted over time. But we know he was a man of God. We also know that he spoke on behalf of God because some of that's recorded in the book of Jude. He had, he had a special relationship with God. This great pyramid is an anomaly. It's the only one of the seven wonders in the world that's left. And it is an anomaly because it wasn't used to house dead bodies. And so when you start... Studying, I know some of you have looked at these, the, the dimensions and all the things that are in there, there's so much understanding in that. We believe there's no way that could have been built without supernatural help. And I'm one of those people that believe that. From telling you the distance of the earth from the sun, 93 million, to pointing to Jerusalem, to having a chamber of descent that represents hell, to having a chamber of ascent into the king's chamber, over and over and over, how these 20-ton stones were laid on top of each other, one-twentieth of an inch apart, all the way across. 20-ton stones. And Caterpillar didn't exist back then. So they didn't have any machinery. And you, I can't see 48 little Egyptians running through the, the sand trying to handle a 20-ton stone. But when you start researching that Great Pyramid and reflect back on all the things that it points to of what God's created in the end of time and Israel and Jerusalem, we know Israel had great influence. Also, something else I've learned is that the Egyptians called a man in their culture the holy man. And many theologians believe that he was talking about Enoch. The Egyptians even gained respect for him. So it's very, here's, here's what makes more sense. It makes more sense that these angels were dispatched here to work on behalf of Enoch. And that while they were here, they got corrupt. And they decided to do their own thing instead of honor God. And what was created out of that is this race of giants. And so these giants, you can, uh, you know, a lot of the Jewish folks have uh, things that they've written. Jesus understood. He, this stuff was around when Jesus was here on earth, talking about the Nephilim and all that. Goliath was a very popular story. All of them knew that to be true. So these, these angels are sons of God who have chosen and became corrupt. 
It's these angels that the Jewish people blame for teaching them witchcraft, astrology, all these other things that they did, and, and the rebellion against God. They've even got names for them. And so there, there is a, a lot of Jewish teaching that helps us understand most likely what went on. So it's very possible these angels were here working on behalf of God in conjunction with someone, probably Enoch, and they were... Now, if you'll go with me, hold your spot, and keep your spot in Job, we'll try to get back there. Uh, but turn with me to Isaiah chapter 19. Isaiah chapter 19. I want to show you something here. And we'll reference this great pyramid one more time here, and then I'll take you to the New Testament. In Isaiah, on Isaiah chapter 19, look at verse uh, 19. 19 and 19, that's easy to remember. In that day, whenever you hear the phrase in the Old Testament by a prophet, in that day, he's referring to the end of time. In that day... There will be an altar to the Lord in the midst of the land of Egypt and a pillar to the Lord at its border. And it will be a sign and for a witness to the Lord of hosts in the land of Egypt. For they will cry to the Lord because they are precious and he will send them a savior and a mighty one and will deliver them. The Lord will be known to Egypt. Now let me take you back. You've heard me say this before. Egypt's going to return to God. That's what he's prophesying. Egypt's going to come back to the Lord. Why would they do that? Because that God had such heavily, heavy influence. They saw all the miracles. In fact, if you read the book of Psalms, it says many of the Egyptians believed. So God is going to return to them. They're, they're going to be, and I know that's hard for us to get our minds around because we know how big the battle is between Ishmael and Isaac, between Islam and and, and the Jews, but they're going to return to God. And, and it looks like part of their return is something that's going to begin to unfold and be unveiled in the last days. And that's what we're seeing. When you see, let me draw this for you, that great pyramid is the only thing in the world that's doing what, that, what the prophet's saying there. Look at what he said. He said there will be an altar to the Lord. And if you study that, that whole great pyramid appears to have been built to honor God, which would make sense if Enoch built it. And it would make sense how it got built if you had supernatural beings helping build that. When Jesus talked about being the chief cornerstone, he wasn't talking about the corner of a house that you build, like we would say, get the corner right and then build off of that. He was talking about a capstone. If you have a dollar bill, you'll see that great, you'll see a pyramid on the back of our, our dollar bill with a capstone. That cornerstone or capstone is the last stone that goes on top of a pyramid. The Israelites understood that. Like I said earlier, that's the reason I've been studying. They spent almost 500 years, not hardly 500 years, down in Egypt. So they understood pyramids, they understood what was going on. They knew that Enoch was called the holy man by the Egyptians. They knew all that. And so this great pyramid, that cornerstone is that capstone. Uh, when you get a chance, before you stick it in the offering plate on the way out, look at that dollar bill. <laughs> look at that dollar bill that you have in your pocket, if you're not spending it on your children already, and see that capstone. All right? Jesus was talking about that when he said, if the stone falls on you, you'll be crushed. 
If you fall on it, it would be broken. When they, this pyramidology, you would set the capstone off to itself because it was so sharp and pointed, you didn't want people to get injured on it. They could be injured on it. But if you were underneath it and they were hoisting it and it fell down, you would be crushed by it. Jesus knew that his people understood that because they spent a lot of time in Egypt. And then a lot of those other pyramids have been mimicked or built off of this great pyramid here. So we know now that it was built way before the Pharaoh that they said. That's been proven definitively. So now we understand also that it has a water line around it where water seeped down and settled and then worked its way on down. So now they understand that the pyramid was here before the flood. Now, that's when you're getting back into Enoch, right? So Jesus is the chief cornerstone, right? Paul talked about that figuratively. He said, we're all pieces, all right? Each one of us fitly joined together underneath the head or the cornerstone, right? So the pyramid finds its togetherness at the cornerstone, right? All the angles and all the points of the pyramid meet together in the head. The head is in charge, and we are all fitly joined together. That's why it's amazing when they built that pyramid that those 20-ton stones were one-twentieth of an inch apart, chiseled perfectly. The only way you could do that is for supernatural things to be involved. They, in fact, some of the things they said that were done on that Great Pyramid, we don't even have the technology today to do it. That's why I tell people, don't show me your smartphone. Let me take you out back and show you a cherry tree. That's what impresses me. How God can send the bee over to pollinate the flower and how He takes care of everything. God is so far ahead of us, Paul said, His foolishness is wiser than our greatest wisdom. Somebody give God praise for that, amen? So this pyramid, this is the original shape of Egypt. Now, borders have been moved around and wars have been fought and all that kind of stuff. But in its original shape, in 19 and 19 there, it says, the altar to the Lord in the midst of the land of Egypt and the pillar on its border. This pyramid, this great pyramid is built right here. It's the only place in the world that that statement could be true. See this? If you divide Egypt in half, it's in the middle and on the border. It's the only place in the world. And that's where that great pyramid sits. So what it seems like God's going to do is He's going to use this altar, as Isaiah's calling it, to call the Egyptians back to Him because nobody has seen the power and the glory of the Lord except for Israel, any more than the Egyptians. They saw, they've got it in their history. They've seen everything. They saw everything God did from the famine to the, uh, the hell and the locusts and the, all the things and the chariot wheels now that they found in the bottom of the Red Sea to authenticate that God drowned that army of, uh, down in the Red Sea over and over and over. You can see now, at first I was stunned years ago and I read it, I thought, Egypt coming back to God, how could that be? You know, how are they going to turn back to God? I mean, and then you, but you start thinking about all the evidence that they have of God being in their midst, showing them who He is. Now you can understand that. Now let's go to Jude chapter 1, <laughs> verse 6. I want you to pay close attention here as I read this because you'll miss this if you don't uh, pay attention. There's only one chapter, by the way. Jude chapter 1, verse 6. 
uh, it says, And the angels who did not keep their proper domain. So we've got some angels who run out on God, right? We've got angels who turned against God. Some in the rebellion with Satan. Some, it looks like, while they were here on earth, working alongside possibly Enoch. It says, And the angels who did not keep their proper domain, but left their own abode, he has reserved an everlasting change uh, under darkness for the judgment of the great day, as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, in similar manner to these, having given themselves over to sexual immorality. That's what these angels did in Genesis chapter 6. They gave themselves over to immorality with these women, they, this race of giants. And he's comparing what they did with what Sodom did. Now, I want you to think about this for a minute. What was the biggest, most shocking thing that happened in Sodom before God destroyed it? These guys wanted to have sex with the angels. And the angels struck them with blindness. There is no doubt some understanding that people had about all this information. And here's something that's hard to think about. But I'll go ahead and bring it up because you all need to wrestle with it like I do. Somebody on that ark had the seed of the giants in them. Because on the other side of the flood... Goliath showed up. So that seed had been moved around from these Nephilim. And these angels rebelled against God. And that wasn't nothing new because angels had rebelled before. And they chose not to keep their first estate. They got their eyes off on the daughter of men. So there's you just a little bit of some historical lessons uh, to get us to move on a little bit here in Job, because we're going to watch out. Let's go through. Let's go back to chapter two. And Job, uh, there's a lot more to that, but I don't want to get us all wrapped up in that. I just want to give you enough information to uh, think about those things. In chapter two, uh, Satan shows up with these guys. Right? We stop there. It says, uh, "The Lord asked him a question. It says, from where do you come?" Satan answered. The Lord and said, I from going to and fro on the earth and from walking back and forth on. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? So this is the second time that God is putting Job out there. Right? And uh, we hope we're up on God's list. We just hope we're not up this high on his list. Right? To where he points us out to Satan and says, hey, take a shot at him. Uh, that there is none like him on the earth. This is God talking, right? Now, that's a pretty strong commendation there. He said, there's none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and shuns evil. Fears God and shuns evil. And still he holds fast to his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without cause. Who is that servant that God can use extremely? Is it you? Is it me? If you woke up tomorrow morning and had nothing left, would you be upset with God? 
Think about Job. In less than 24 hours, he lost everything. And it ain't like he lost a few things. He lost it all. And his wife turned against him. Would you turn on God? Would I turn on God? If I woke up tomorrow and... This story is so powerful about who's in charge and how equipped God is. Listen, if you lost every dime you had tomorrow, God could restore it in two weeks or the next day. I, that, we got to get out of that kind of thinking. We got to stop worrying, right? What Psalm 37 say? Fretting slash worrying only causes harm. It don't do any good. Now, we're all going to get challenged with worrying, but we got to push it back. David said, what time I'm afraid, I will trust in the Lord. We need to grow and stop, not allow worry to push us around or to define who we are. And said, uh, then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered him? And he commends Job again. And so Satan answered the Lord and said, I want you to pay attention to this. This guy's lost everything. Notice what the devil says here. He says, skin for skin. Yes, all that a man has, he will give for his life. But stretch out your hand now. Touch his bone and his flesh. And he will surely curse you to your face. The levels of suffering. If you're got in a spot to where God can allow you to suffer in the flesh... You're getting ready to move in a different dimension if you'll hang on to Him while you go through it. I'm going to tell you something. Job suffered in the flesh, and so did Jesus. And we're going to look at some stuff in the New Testament here. God's idea of allowing us to suffer is for our benefit. The trying of our faith, Peter said, is more precious than gold because it has a way of purifying us. Let's go on here. He says, he says you touch his uh, flesh and he will turn on you. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he is in your hand, but spare his life. Again, we see who's in charge, right? God said, here's as far as you can go. You can't go any further. That ought to give us great confidence that if you're following the Lord... Now, if you get in rebellion, you put yourself at risk. But if you're committed to following the Lord and you're doing His will... God is in charge of your life. He's got angels encamped around us. The devil can't do anything that God don't allow. And we ought to be encouraged by that, that God is in charge. Satan is having to get permission from God to do anything. That ought to give us great comfort. And God allows things to happen and to be orchestrated in our lives sometimes to do deeper things inside of us. And that's a good thing. If Jesus suffered, if he was persecuted, he said, you guys are going to deal with it too. Now look at this. He says, Satan went out from the presence of the Lord, struck Job with painful boils from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. He took himself a, a potsherd uh, with which to scrape himself while he sat in the midst of the ashes. Then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. Everybody needs a help mate like that, right? 
You know, when you've got a helpmate or a friend or if it's your husband, your wife, whatever, both of you can't be given up at the same time. Somebody's got to stand the ground. And, and everybody's going to have moments of weakness, right? But you've you got to have somebody that come alongside you and say, hey, we've got to stick this out. What's waiting on us on the other side is worth what we're going to face down here. You know, we, we need to get back to this as the modern church. Those guys in the New Testament, when they suffered in the flesh and got persecuted and thrown in jail, they rejoiced about it. We cry and whine and get on Facebook and tell everybody. Can I get an amen? They, thank you. They rejoiced about it. They rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer on the Lord's behalf. Whole different perspective than where we're at in our culture today, even our church culture. He says, then his wife said to him, do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women speaks. Now, you, you know, I don't want to be too harsh on either one of them here. Man, I don't know. You lose your whole... Job didn't lose his job. He lost everything, including his children who were killed. And his wife's got to be going through some heavy grief so I don't want to be too difficult on her or him. Said, uh, he said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women speaks. Shall we indeed, listen to this line, shall we indeed accept good from God and shall we not accept adversity? And all this Job did not sin with his lips. Wow. Even Peter went out back and cursed. Remember that? In the New Testament? When he denied Christ? Then he wept bitterly because he went out and had a cursing fit and acted like he didn't even know Jesus. And Job's lost all of his children, lost all of his businesses, and he still hasn't sinned with his lips. Now when Job's three friends heard of all the adversity that had come upon him, each one came from his own place, Eliphaz, the Temanite, Bildad, the Shuhite, Zophar, the Naamathite, for they had made an appointment together to come and mourn with him and to comfort him. And this was a big deal. And, if, you know, I've had to learn this over the years. Sometimes when you go to see somebody, you don't need to say a thing. You need, sometimes you need to keep your mouth shut <laughs> and just sit there. Um, and it says, they're all coming. And when they raised their eyes from afar and did not recognize him... They lifted their voices and wept. Each one tore his robe, sprinkled dust on his head toward heaven. So they sat down with him on the ground seven days and seven nights. And no one spoke a word to him. And they saw that his grief was very great. I can't imagine, right? As I've said before, we could probably all pile up our trouble right here in the middle of this room. Uh, what we've got, and it wouldn't amount to what Job went through in less than 24 hours. You lose all that. His wife's discouraged, no doubt, disgusted. Job's trying to hang on to the Lord. He makes a great statement there. He says, can we not take good from God's hand and accept adversity as well? The first thing I would like to say to you tonight is your testimony many times is greater during adversity than it is when everything's going good. Because how I many of you have heard this before? Well, it's, it's easy for you to say, God, 
been good to you. But when they see you and I going through adversity and see us still hanging on to the Lord, then that gives off the fragrance of the Lord. And where none of us are going to escape adversity, these guys were traumatized to some degree by what they saw there. Let's go to 2 Timothy chapter 2. And let's hear what the Lord says here through the Apostle Paul. Verse 12 of 2 Timothy chapter 2. Let's just, let's just start in verse 11. It says, This is a faithful saying. If we died with Him, we shall also live with Him. Now, let me say this. The Bible tells us not to be offended. Not to be easily offended. You can't offend a dead man. Do you know that? I mean, he's laying here in the casket. You could smack his jaws, say all kinds of stuff to him, shake him. He's dead. And that's how we, the Lord wants us to be. He wants us to be that way. We died ourselves so that he can live through us. If we endure, and some of your translations will say suffer, and the Greek word there means to suffer wrong under persecution or and you can get persecution from the devil himself. You can get persecution like he's doing with Job here. He's persecuting Job. He's done it. Now he's doing it physically. He's physically persecuting Job's health. So we can get persecuted by the enemy if God allows it. He says, if we endure, we suffer with him, we shall also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithful, if we are faithless, he remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. Turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 4. And let's think about this guy Job now as we read some of these verses out of Peter. In 1 Peter chapter 4, he's talking to the New Testament church here. Um, you and I. Listen to what he says. Now, there's like a 15-minute clip on our YouTube channel that's titled, The Benefits of Suffering. You can check that out uh, if you like. But let's just talk about some, some of these same verses on there. Therefore, since Christ suffered for us, how? And the flesh. Arm yourselves also with the same mind. In other words, get ready. For he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Uh, let me, let me say something to you here. Let me uh, show you something here. Sin can manifest itself in a thousand, hundred thousand different ways. But sin boils down to this concept. The concept is that I am going to do my will instead of God's. 
Now, if you hear the word sin, at first glance, you may say, well, I don't do any of that stuff. Right? Yeah, we don't do any of that stuff. Whatever that stuff is. But when God's working in your life, drawing you into certain moments, certain places, certain tasks, and we're resisting that, that's sin. We have to allow the Lord to overcome our will that we'll do His will. Jesus wrestled with that right in the garden. He said, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. So here's what God's going to do. And this is very important. Hear me out before you judge me on this. We all have the same call. And that call is to know Him. Every one of us have the same call. Your call, my call, is to know Him. We all have different tasks. But your call is to know Him. Abraham's desire is to know Him. And see, God, we're all made differently individually and God orchestrates our lives in a way for this to happen what happens is the deeper my revelation of God the deeper my worship can be for instance Abraham's out there you know he's dreading all this he had to go home tell Sarah We're going to have to sacrifice Isaac. Imagine how that conversation went. My wife and I did an illustrated sermon years ago. She was on the flat, and she was Sarah, and I was Isaac, and we acted all that out. And she did a good job, actually. She cried and everything. She really. Because you start letting it get a hold of you. Think about that moment when Abraham went home and said, Listen. I know God gave us Isaac, but he told me I need to go sacrifice. You imagine what Sarah was thinking? Wrestling through all that. He gets, the Bible says the next day he left. He didn't put it off. He didn't say, listen, Lord, can we not take a cruise together as a family and then we'll do this when we get home? The Bible said he went the next day. The Bible says Matthew and these guys that that worked for the IRS said they left their tables immediately. I think God's looking for some immediate obedience out of us. Not that I'm too tired to get up, God. I don't feel like going to church today. I don't want to write that check you've asked. I think God's looking for some people to say, What would you say? I'm in. Because everything I have has come from your hand. How can I tell you no? And so he's there at the mountain, probably going up the mountain. When he gets up there, God speaks to him, stops him, and then he's, there's right over there is a, a, a ram caught in a thicket. And he knew God at that moment as Jehovah Jireh. What do you think happened on that mountain? Abraham was a different man when he come down that mountain. 
because he saw a facet of God. He saw God's compassion. He saw God's reward. He saw God's provision. And that helped his worship to go deeper. God's going to put you and me in places that help us know him. And we're hard-headed. We look at the children of Israel. They had to walk around. What should have took them a few weeks to get from point A to point B took them 40 years because they're stubborn. They're not heads. And so are we at times, right? And God is doing things, orchestrating things in our lives so that we can know Him. How do we know Him? In the fellowship of His sufferings and the power of His resurrection, the Bible says. Job's learning this lesson. It says, He that suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh, the lust of men, but for the will of God. That's it. It's about the will, right? Your will or his will. For we have spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles when we walked in lewdness, lust, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, abominable idolatries. In regard to these, they think it's strange that you do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation, speaking evil of you. And that's one of the things I try to encourage people. Because a lot of times I deal with people that get saved late in life. And they, you know, they look at their whole life and they're thinking a lot of them struggle with that. How much they just disregarded God. I say, how about living the second half of your life totally committed? How about living... If, you've got, if you think you've got 20 years left, how about living every second of that for the Lord? They, don't, they think it's strange that you don't participate with the world anymore. They give an, uh, said they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this reason, the gospel is preached also to those who are dead, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the Spirit. But the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be serious, watchful in your prayers, and above all things, have fervent love for one another. For love will cover a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without grumbling. As each one has received a gift, minister to one another as good stewards and manifold grace of God. Living this kind of life, even in adversity. This whole book's written about adversity and trials and tribulation. If anyone speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God. If anyone ministers, let him do so with the ability which God supplies, that in all things God may be glorified. So God wants to be glorified in your life. Through Jesus Christ, to whom belong the glory and dominion forever and ever. Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened to you. But rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings. What? Now that's weird to the natural man. Uh, I've not said this in a while, but let me show you something else here. The deepest truths of God are paradoxical. In other words, they run contrary to the way the natural man would think, right? The Bible says, if you want to live, you must if you want to receive, you must. Right? So those are paradoxical truths. They don't factor in with the flesh the way the flesh thinks. Right? The flesh is very preservative. Right? 
It's very, we want to preserve everything. That's how the flesh is geared up. So he says, don't think it's strange concerning this fire trial that try you as though some strange thing have you, but rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings. That when his glory is revealed, you may be also be glad with exceeding glory. Joy. Now, if we suffer with him, we'll reign with him, right? This suffering sometimes comes in the form of persecution. Jesus got lied on. He got spit on. He got mocked. He got drugged before the councils. Paul was put in prison. He was beaten. They had some mental and persecution in the spiritual realm, but they also suffered in the flesh. Job suffered in the flesh. Paul and Silas, they beat half to death in Acts chapter 16 and threw them in the inner prison, the Bible says. The inner prison was called the Maritime Dungeon in the Roman society. You know what went on in the Maritime Dungeon in the Roman culture? Raw sewage ran through there. These guys were locked in stocks, beat half to death, because they had just cast a devil out of the woman. Now you think about how their mental capacity. You don't think the devil wasn't down there in that sewer? He, he likes to live in the sewer anyway. He was down there probably whispering to Paul and Silas saying, we see you was doing the good thing. Let's just go over there, can we? Let's go to Acts 16 and 16. I didn't have that plan to do, but let's just follow the Holy Spirit here before I close. In Acts 16 and 16, uh, verse it says, now in, in Acts 16 and 16, it says, now it happened... And you can remember those two things, right? Isaiah 19, 19 and Acts 16, 16. Now it happened as we went to prayer that a certain slave girl possessed with a spirit of divination met us who brought her masters much profit by fortune telling. She was a soothsayer or fortune teller. This girl, and the reason she was able to tell fortunes or see things in the spiritual because she had a demon in her. All right? Well, she had supernatural help. She had a demon that could see things in the supernatural realm. This girl followed Paul and us and cried out saying, These men are servants of the Most High who proclaimed to us the way of salvation. And this she did for many days. Let me say it like she was probably saying it. These guys, they think there's something. They're the ones going around. She was being sarcastic because she had a demon in her. And so it says, But Paul, greatly annoyed, I like that, even Paul got annoyed, turned and said to that spirit, he said, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And he came out and he came out that very hour. But when her master saw that their hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas. Why? Because of the love of money. See, this woman couldn't tell fortunes anymore because that demon was cast out of her. Said, uh, you better be careful about doing stuff that the world does. You'll be opening your life up to a spirit. Paul and Silas dragged them in the marketplace of authorities, and they, and they brought them to the mass. I don't, I don't have any argument. And, I, and I, in, my, in the ministry I've been part of, I've cast out demons three or four times in 30-some years. They're, they're real. They're real. But the good news is, greater is he that is in us than he that's in the world. Amen? Amen. You can give him praise for that. They brought, the magistrate said, these men, uh, uh, they seized them for casting this demon out, but they're mad because they can't make any money anymore. These men being Jews exceedingly trouble our city, so they're using that against them. They teach customs that are not lawful for us, being Romans to receive or observe. Nobody's rejoicing over the fact that the woman's no longer demon possessed. The love of money is the root of all evil, right? They're, they're mad over the money. Then the multitude rose up together against them. The magistrates tore off their clothes. See, they're getting lied on. Now think about what the battle, now think about, put yourself in here for a moment. 
You're, you just done the will of God. You, something great has happened. You didn't do it, but the Lord did it through you. This woman's free now. She's been consumed with a demon. She's been demon-possessed. She's free. Everything ought to be good. And you're getting lied on, draw, brought up before the magistrates. That would begin to work on your mental capacity because the devil's right there saying, see, doing good ain't helping you none. Look what happened after you've done good, right? Where's God now? He's letting you, right? Right? That's how the devil works in our lives. And they, they laid many stripes on them, so they took a whip on them, then threw them in the prison, commanded the jail to keep them securely. Having received such a charge, he put them in the inner prison, that's what I was telling you about, and fastened their feet in stock. Now let me tell you, they're in this inner prison, they're having to smell that stench or dung, as Paul calls it later in the Scripture. They're down there locked in stocks, and that's where rats were big as the cats. They're bleeding, open wounds, and the devil's down there, you know, whispering in their ear, look what serving God's got you. Got beat half to death, thrown in this prison. Now you have to lay down here, and here come the rats. You know they were hearing all that stuff. That's how the devil works on all of us. That's how he works on all of us. But the Bible says, look, it says, uh, <clears throat> but at midnight... Paul and Silas got on Facebook and complained and run God down. That ain't, that's not in your Bible, is it? But at midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. They were being a witness. They had every reason to get down on God in the flesh, but they were hanging tough. Suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundation of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were open, and everyone's chains were loosed. Now let me say something to you. In Psalms it says, The Lord inhabits the praises of His people. The New King James translates that a little better than the Old King James, because it goes to the heart of the Hebrew word there. The New King James says, He enthrones Himself in the praises of people. Let me tell you what that means. That means when we praise Him, God brings His throne and sits it right in the middle of our trouble. And that's why I was saying to you earlier, I'm going to preach for just a moment if you'll allow me to. But I was saying to you earlier, you need to praise God in the hard times. It's easy to praise Him in the good times, but it's in the hard times. That's when we need Him to show up with His throne. Because His throne represents power and authority and healing and salvation and provision and everything else we need. So when we're going through a hard time, that's not the time to get mad at God. That's not the time to start feeling sorry for ourselves and backing away. That's the time we need to praise the loudest. At midnight, the Bible says they begin to sing praises to the Lord, and God heard that praise. It left that jail cell, went up to the heavens, and God said, boys, i got to go down there with my throne and sit it right in the middle of that jail cell. And when he did, the doors flew open, the chains come off, and David told us, if I make my bed in hell, you're with me. If I take the wings and fly off, you're with me. If I'm in the bottom of the sea, you're there too, because I know how to praise the Lord. There might be a lot of things you can't do in a jam. When you get in a jam, you may can't fix it. When you get in a jam, you may not have the tools or the resources to do anything about it. But you can praise God. 
You can praise God in your jam. If you get in your jam, you ought to start praising Him and worshiping Him and saying, I praise you for making that axe head float. I praise you for parting that Red Sea. I praise you for raising the dead. I praise you for opening blinded eyes. I praise you for sending your Son. I praise you for sending the Holy Spirit. I praise you for your Word. I praise you. You might can't do anything in the natural, but you can praise God. And when He shows up, He's bringing His throne with Him. Hallelujah. So you and I are going to suffer from time to time. God's got plans for our lives. He's trying to conform us into the image of His Son. I wish I could say I was there, but I'm not. God's taking me on a journey. We're all on a journey, and God is conforming us into the image of His Son. And that's what your life's about. Your life's about being conformed in the image of His Son. And i got a question for you. If you were God... And you were working on you. What would you be doing with you knowing you're going to have to live with you forever? You think God wants you like you are right now? He may not. (laughs) You're still here and He's still working on you. All right. And He's working on eternal creatures. We're going to live forever with Him. So we're going through through our training and our course. And God's making something good out of us. Amen. Learn this, folks. Discipleship's not a destination. It's a journey. You're on a journey. I'll tell you when your destination will be real. Paul said, when we see him, we shall be like him. But right now, we're on a journey. Let him do his will and surrender to his will. And when you get in a jam, you might can't do a lot of things, but you can always praise him. Amen? Father, we thank you for this moment we've had with you tonight. We thank you for your word. I am so thankful that the book of Job is in our Bible because it keeps us from feeling sorry for ourselves, Lord. It helps us to reconcile the fact that everybody faces adversity, but that you use that adversity to do things in our lives, Lord. Even though we may not see it a moment, or maybe it takes us a while to learn and walk through situations to learn it, you're doing great stuff in us. We open our lives to you tonight, God. And we want you to be all you can be through us. That we can come into that moment like Paul did and say, it's no longer I that live, but Christ in me, who is the hope of glory. In Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen. Amen. Amen.